This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we are going to be answering your questions because we have not done Q&A in a while. So I know you guys like to have whenever your uh, questions are answered. So we want to make sure that we can bring those to you right now. But if you would like to have your question answered here on the podcast, you can either email me, message me on social media, whatever that is. So the email is just info at undaunted.life, info at undaunted.life, or anytime we post something on Instagram, that's the one that we're on most often of all the social media platforms. Just hit us up with a question there. And guys, the questions can be about anything. And as you can see here, uh, the questions today are literally all over the map. And if you listen to any other of the Q&A episodes, some of them are just kind of like preferential. Some of them are just kind of funny. Some of them are like really heavy and really serious. So we're down to really get into all those things. And as some of you guys that have reached out to us before, you've seen where we've actually taken your question and we've turned it into an entire podcast episode. So for some of you, you've gotten a little bit of a treat because you got an entire episode because of something that you brought to our attention here. And so that's that's really important to us as well. If there's something that's important to you, we want to make sure that we cover it and we want to make sure that the guys that are listening to this also get a sense of what we're talking about as well. So it does not matter. Send us a question. If it's a dumb question, maybe it'll never get answered, but otherwise we will kind of go from there. So we will launch into our first question question of the day. And so here we go. Should Christians watch Game of Thrones? So this is a question that has come up a lot. And it's come up a lot in circles that I've been in, even circles that I haven't been in. It's being chattered about online. I think some churches are actually talking about it is, should we be watching this show? So if you have been living under a rock for the last decade or so, Game of Thrones is a show on HBO. It's a fantasy show. And it is pretty much the biggest show on television right now. We are right in the middle, or I guess towards the latter end of the the last season. So I think if you're listening to this podcast on time, the actual finale of this show, I think this is at the end of season eight, uh, it'll be the last show of all time. And it's coming up this Sunday or something like that. I think if you're, if you're listening to this on time. So the thing about it is, is even if you're not into fantasy, even if you're not into all those things, Game of Thrones is a cultural phenomenon. And so it is becoming part of our normal vernacular. There are things that are said and done on that show that people are just kind of throwing into their normal conversation. And um, all the stars are on all the talk shows and they're being interviewed on the podcast. And it's um, it's culminating in a lot of things for a lot of the actors and actresses. A lot of them have were, were kind of either not known at all or not really known for being that great before this show. And now they're getting chances to star in their own movies and different things like that. So We've seen that. So that's Game of Thrones. But here's the thing about Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is an incredibly sexual show. And it's also an incredibly violent show. Again, this is a fantasy show, so you're not really getting that morality and all those different things. But it does have a lot of issues in terms of those two particular things. Again, this is on HBO. This isn't on cable. You have to pay for this. So pretty much if you're an HBO show, they have to show you boobs because that's pretty much what HBO has to do, right? And so I had a a friend of mine actually reach out to me and ask me my opinion on this. And... I had an immediate reaction, but then I held my tongue and kind of waited and thought through it. And then I gave my full on reaction. And this is my personal opinion on whether or not Christians should watch Game of Thrones. It's that if you have problems with seeing sexual things on a screen and being unable to keep yourself from acting out sexually, you shouldn't watch a show. Also, if you watch things that are violent on television or something like this show, and it makes you want to be violent towards people in your life, you should not watch the show. But otherwise, if we are to sanitize everything that we do, every bit of entertainment that we take in and put it through the lens of, well, is this moral or not? 
there might not be entertain any entertainment left. And I know some of you are like, yeah, we should just only watch, you know, Christian movies and listen to Michael W. Smith and all that. And hey, if that's your opinion, cool. Like, I'm fine with that. Like, I don't think I would would argue with you necessarily on that. But the thing about it is, is, is if something leads you into temptation and that temptation actually leads you to sin, you should avoid that thing, right? You shouldn't hang out near it. You you should run away from it entirely. And so whenever I was talking to my buddy, we were, we were having a drink at a place here in Edmond, Edmond, Oklahoma. And basically what we, what I told him is I was like, look, and this is a little bit crass, but this is just kind of what I said at the time. But it was like, look, if you can't watch a sex scene in a movie or a, or a television show without pausing it and throwing your hand in your pants. Yeah, this this isn't the show for you because it's going to give you plenty of opportunities to do that. And so here's the thing. I've watched Game of Thrones like it's something that I've watched before. And here's the thing about the sex scenes in, in this show. They're completely useless to the storyline. I mean, completely. And, and if we were to think about it, aren't all sex scenes where, you know, body parts are actually shown, aren't all of those parts actually really, really useless to the overall story? I mean, the thing is, back in the day in movies, all sex was implied, right? You know, you'd have the woman undoing the guy's shirt, and all of a sudden they'd go, go in the room and the door would close, and then the next scene would be them waking up together the next day in bed, right? There, there's no question as to what happened that evening, but we didn't need to see it, Right? But you see a lot of these shows, you know, on, on these pay for stations. So your showtimes and your HBOs and your stars and all that, they're just showing graphic nudity and graphic sexual nudity for the sake of showing it, right? That That's all that it is for. And another good example is one of my favorite shows of all time is a show called Rome. It was another show on HBO. Uh, it was only two seasons long, but it basically followed the time around Julius Caesar whenever he was assassinated and uh, the rise of, uh, of Augustus Caesar and all those different things. And the thing about that show is there was some gratuitous sex in that show as well. And it was so annoying. Like, even at the time when I was watching that show, that was at a time where, you know, sexual sin and lust and me acting out on it was something that was, like, incredibly, insanely more pre- prevalent than it is for me right now, since I've kind of matured to a different area. But I remember it still being annoying at that time. Like, really? Like, I would love to sit down and watch a show, you know, with my girlfriend at the time, or, or my wife, or my parents, or whatever the thing might be. But it's just like, man, it's just, it's just awkward. It's just weird. And, you know, you, you fast forward and then you miss some actual dialogue that was necessary to the story. And so the thing about it is I kind of feel like I'm, I'm getting off the subject here a little bit. But honestly, I think this this comes down to everyone's personal conscience on the issue. And I know I spent most of the time talking about it in a sexualized manner. But I do know some people that whenever they are around violence or whenever they see violence, it makes them want to be violent. It tempts them to be violent. Maybe they have a violent streak inside of their personality. And so that's something that you got to be aware of. But um, the thing is, is if you can watch it for its entertainment quality and, and watch it and appreciate the, the acting or the special effects or the story, or maybe you read the books before and now you're actually seeing the books come to life and, and that's really exciting to you and you're not really tempted to be immoral for watching that show or to, to act out sexually or to act out physically or whatever those things might be. In my opinion, I think you're going to be okay. But at the same time, if you think it's not okay, if you don't want to lead yourself into temptation, if you don't want to get up right towards that line, I understand that as well. So that's that first one. All right, guys, next question. Why do you always talk about abortion? We get it. You're pro-life. You don't have to talk about it every episode. So uh, apparently this individual is not terribly happy that I talk about abortion every episode. But to sir or ma'am, to address this question, the reason why we talk about abortion is because it's incredibly important, you dope. Come on. Like, seriously, 
The reason why we talk about it so often and that we keep everybody up to date is because most of you are not kept up to date on this issue with the normal news that you follow. Even if that news is Fox News or or right-leaning stuff, you're not really getting a lot of things that are going on within the law on this particular issue. Because this is the issue of the sanctity of human life, of the Imago Dei, right? Because we are losing thousands and thousands of image bearers of God every single day to abortion, to the murder of babies. And here's the other thing. Again, I, a few weeks ago, I taught my Sunday school and it's a bunch of couples that are, you know, in their thirties and early forties or something like that. And these are people that are well-meaning Christian people that want to do right, that are moral, that want to do all those different things. And they had no responses or would have had no responses to some of the most basic fundamental, uh, objections that pro-abortion people put out there. So if they had been in a conversation with somebody that they could actually change their mind or the minds of the people around them, they would have had no idea how to respond. And again, these are well-meaning Christian people that don't think abortion is something that we should do. They don't think we should murder babies inside the womb. But if someone says, oh, well, it's not really a baby. It's a clump of cells. They'd be like, the Bible, right? You know, and, and again, the Bible is a sufficient thing to answer that question, but they don't even know where to point to in the Bible to say that this is what we should do. This is a standard that we have. And so the thing about it is, is if you're tired of hearing about abortion, go listen to another podcast. I don't care. Like the thing is, is we're going to talk about the things on this podcast that are important. And if you don't think abortion is important, if you don't think the things that we think are important are important, then go do something else. There are literally what tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of different podcasts out there that kind of have their own style and have their own thing. So guys, if there's ever a time where you feel like I'm beating a dead horse on anything, sure, you're welcome to tell me. And I'm also welcome to not give a crap about your response. Like, but that's the thing is this is one of those issues that we are going to continue to beat this drum until abortion is eradicated worldwide, which I'm not sure we'll ever see in our lifetime. I'm not sure if we'll ever see that just in the United States with the way things are going, but until that is just completely eradicated and no longer an option, I'm going to keep talking about it. So just get used to it. All right, guys, next question. Does God still do miracles slash heal? So When I first got this question, I I thought this was going to be one that I was just going to kind of skip because it's like, well, duh, doesn't he kind of just do miracles? That's something that we all kind of know. But this is actually a much deeper issue for a lot of people, right? There are people that are non-Christians. There are people that are atheists. There are people that are Christians that kind of ask this. They're like, well, I don't, I don't really see miracles around. And so, you know, I read the Bible and I hear about all these miracles and I'm thinking to myself, well, gosh, I, I think it would be really good for me if, if I could hear one of these miracles or see one of these miracles or, or at least know someone that knew somebody that, that got to witness a miracle like this. And so why isn't God acting right now the way that he did thousands of years ago? And so I'll kind of start with the end in mind here. And that is that, yes, I still obviously think that God does miracles and does heal people. Um, But I remember, and I I can't remember if this was uh, Ravi Zacharias quoting someone else or if this was his quote, but it's basically like if God gave you a thousand miracles, you'd ask for a thousand and one. Right. And so that's the thing is, is because there's the logical question here, which is wouldn't more people believe in God if he just did miracles? But I think Ravi's right on there with either himself or whoever he was quoting that we would always ask for something additional. Right. And the reason that we know this to be true is because there were hundreds, if not thousands of people that watched Jesus perform miracles like right before their very eyes. And even they walked away not believing in him. I mean, including the apostles. 
I mean, just remember those three days before the resurrection and just remember what the apostles did running up to the point of Jesus's death in, in the few days thereafter. Just think about it. They saw it. They were around him for three years, every single day, watching him teach and watching him heal and watching him do miracles. And even they were like, oh man, guess we got it wrong. So who are we to say that we, we wouldn't have those feelings now? when we're not walking around with Jesus. And so um, as I was kind of digging into this, there's a lot of different ways that I can go. But again, this is Q&A podcast. So we try to do short little chunks on different subjects. But I found a really, really helpful article by John Piper. And so well, it's not exactly an article. I think he has a, a weekly or, or monthly podcast show, which is basically Ask John Piper. And he was asked specifically about this. And so I'm going to include the audio here at the end of the podcast, uh, the link anyway, so that you can go check it out. But the question that he got for that week is, why do we see so few miracles today? And so what I want to do is I want to actually read through his answer because it's a very well thought out answer. And again, he's just being asked in kind of like an interview type way. So it's not like something where he just wrote it out into an essay form or something like that, but I'm just going to go ahead and read the transcript to you here. So you can kind of get a sense of what he would say to answer this question. So here we go. It seems we see signs, wonders, and miracles all over our Bibles. But for many of us, we see an absence of signs, wonders, and miracles in our lives and in the world around us. So where did the wonders go? It's a question from a college student who writes into us, quote, Pastor John, Thank you for the wonderful podcast. I listen regularly. I'm a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania. My parents are missionaries in the Republic of Georgia. I've spent some time on the, in the mission field with them as well. Living on as a very secular or living on a very secular campus is obviously a night and day difference from the mission field, especially as I talk to my classmates about faith, life, and Christianity in general. One question that my friends often ask me is this one: <clears throat> Why doesn't God work overt miracles today in 21st century America like he did in both the Old and New Testaments? Doesn't it seem convenient that God only worked miracles in the Bible? How would you answer this objection to the faith? Unquote. My answer to this is fairly simple. It's this: There are fewer miracles in the Bible than you probably think, and there are more miracles today than you probably know. And there is a good biblical reason for why there would be a certain kind of prevalence of miracles in the Bible that is different from today. Let me say a word about each of those three observations. First, old miracles. Think about the Old Testament. Here's a typical statement. The psalmist says in Psalm 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. When you read the Old Testament, you realize most of the saints in most of these centuries would have talked like that. The wonders of old. Oh, remember the wonders of old. They would have had the same question we do. Why were there more miracles in the days of Elijah or in the days of Moses than there are today in the day of the prophets or in the days of the kings? It's simply a great mistake to think that there are miracles running all through the history of God's people as the Bible records it. They were not running all through the history of God's people. They sprung up around certain periods of time, like the Exodus and like the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Most of the time, the saints of the Old Testament were living by faith in the promises of God for the future, rooted in the past wonders of God that he had worked. This is the way we live our lives today, by faith in the promises of God for a kingdom that's yet to be consummated by looking back to the decisive work of Jesus Christ in the Bible. So now let's talk about new miracles. When it comes to the New Testament, it is gloriously true that Jesus did miracles perfectly and consistently, though even he raised only three people from the dead and didn't heal people in many places where he traveled or where he didn't travel. The miracles of Jesus were clearly not to show that the kingdom has been consummated. They showed that the kingdom had been broken into the world, pointing to a future day when everybody would be raised from the dead and those who believed in Jesus Christ would not be sick anymore, because that's the way Jesus is, and he's showing some of that now. 
Not only that, but Jesus himself explains his own miracles as pointing to his divinity. In other words, something about these miracles attached to him, and you wouldn't expect them to attach to other people in the same way. For example, he said in John 10, 37, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. In other words, these works are good evidence that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I'm unique. I am the Son of God. This is true. Even though he gave his disciples authority to do miracles also, they knew that there was something utterly unique about the man and the way he did miracles. The authority and power uniquely resided in him as the very Son of God. When you turn to the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, it's obvious that the apostles did some astonishing miracles, but it's also true that they suffered much and their colleagues got sick. Paul carried a doctor around with him and they got thrown in prison. They got killed. Even though there were gifts of miracles and gifts of healing and gifts of exorcism that are spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12, it would be a huge stretch to think that the Christians with those gifts in the first century were performing miracles the way Jesus did. Already in the first century, outside the life of Jesus, things had changed. My first observation is that we shouldn't think of the Bible times, either Old or New Testament, as times in which saints of God consistently did miracles. That would be a distortion of the biblical record. They were few and far between in the Old Testament. They were uniquely concentrated in Jesus and his apostles in a very special, Christ-exalting way. They are shared in part through the spiritual gifts with all the saints. The second observation I would make is that there are probably more miracles happening today than we realize. If we would collect all the authentic stories all over the world from all the missionaries and all the saints and all the countries of the world, all the cultures of the world, if we could collect all the millions of encounters between Christians and demons and Christians and sickness and all the so-called coincidences of the world, we would be stunned. We would think we were living in the world of miracles, which we are. The third observation I would make, and this is probably what I would say to the unbeliever who is challenging me, is that the heart of Christianity is not that the kingdom has fully come and all sin and evil is being overcome now in this age. The heart of Christianity is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world at a point in history in the past to reveal what God is like and to accomplish salvation for all who believe in him by dying and rising again. Miracles cluster around that appearance in history in Jesus and the life of the apostles to vindicate his claim and their writings. Christianity is basically a life lived by looking back with confidence in the work of Christ and looking forward in hope because of that past to the consummation that's coming. It is to be willing to suffer and love people now and call them to that faith. We live in a period of time precisely where suffering is normal. Nevertheless, God does now and then and sometimes regularly in periods of revival, use his power to perform, according to his sovereign will, miracles for his people. Why he doesn't do it more now than he does is partly, perhaps, owing to our lack of expectancy and faith, but is ultimately owing to the sovereign decree. When we call people to repent and believe, we're not calling them to do this on the basis of a miracle they saw yesterday, even if it happened. We are calling them on the basis of the glory of Jesus Christ revealed in his death and resurrection, resurrection through scripture. That's the basis. Even if miracles were happening more today, that's where the foundation of the faith would need to lie. And so guys, I think that's a very appropriate way to come at that question and answer it because I got to be honest, I thought the exact same thing. I was like, you know, I've known people that were literally dead, that were dead, heart done, no way of them coming back to life that are coming, that came back to life, no brain damage, even though there was no oxygen to their brain for multiple minutes. So this is something that I've wondered is like, why don't we get more of that? And if people are miraculously healed, why isn't that on the news? And so I think probably the best point from that that I got was if we could collect all these stories, 
you know, from, from all over the place, if we could talk to missionaries, if we could talk to people that were spreading the gospel in dangerous areas, if we could talk to uh, Muslims that have converted to Christianity because of dreams that they've had, if we could talk to all these people and get them into a single book or a single volume or a single podcast or audio book or whatever the thing might be, I think we'd be overwhelmed. I think we would absolutely be overwhelmed. And I know a lot of your secular secularist friends or atheistic friends, or maybe even you on this podcast, you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, a lot of these medical things can be explained, though. You know, there's the Lazarus effect, and then there's the this, and then there's the stuff we haven't even discovered yet. And here's the thing. I'll grant you some of that. I'll grant you some of that. Like, there's some things that people think are a miracle that is basically them having gas. Right. Oh, they couldn't find their keys. And then magically they lifted up this T-shirt that they've never had their keys under before. And poof, there's their keys. Is that a miracle? I'm going to say probably not. But here's the thing, guys, is one of the things I'm looking most forward to in heaven is the thought that I might get some sort of a rundown of all the kind, all the times that God saved my bacon. Right. That time, and I think I've talked about this before, where you're so frustrated because you can't find your keys. You need to get out the door. You're late for a meeting already or whatever the thing might be, and you can't find your keys. And then, you know, it takes you two or three minutes. Oh, gosh, there they are. And you cuss and you, oh, you scream and you whatever, and you storm out. You get in your car and then you head on. Well, if you had been able to find your keys immediately, then perhaps you would have gotten in your car and been at that intersection where that truck was going through after they ran the red light. It's stuff like that. <clears throat> and again, if if we believe that God is coordinating all these things, if he's omniscient, omnipresent, omni everything, right? If we believe that, then those are things that you have to believe could certainly be possible. That he is working things for our good. And so that's one of the things there is I would look at that as a miracle. Whereas you're looking through your lens using, you know, 10% of your the power of your brain, looking through your lens and you're only seeing that I can't find my damn keys, right? It's just a little bit different. So hopefully that gives you a little bit more of a, uh, of an open understanding of what that could look like for us. All right, guys, next question. <laughs> okay. Are leggings pants? So, uh, yeah, thanks to whoever snuck that one in Are leggings pants. Okay. So, uh, well, leggings are not things that I wear. And for those of you that don't understand what leggings are, those are like yoga pants. Uh, le- leggings are all kind of the same thing. Right. And so, I mean, I guess for, for for years now, there's been a lot of people that have been wearing leggings. And to be honest, there's even a couple of guys at my jujitsu school that when they train, they're just wearing leggings and, you know, a, uh, a top, like a, a skin tight top. And it's, it's a little bit weird. It's like, dude, uh, I can see your penis. And so it's just like a little bit like, all right, dude, just put some shorts on or something. But the thing about it is, is, um, well, actually there was a story that came up not that long ago. I, I forget where I heard about it, but at the university of Notre Dame, there was like a mom and I don't know what her connection was to Notre Dame. If she had like a, a daughter or a son at the school or if she was on staff, I've, I really don't know, but I think she wrote an open letter in the student paper or, or something that was attached to Notre Dame. And it was essentially saying that um, she thought it was very, very immodest of girls, especially in college, to be wearing yoga pants like to class and you not wear it with a, a shirt or a sweatshirt that would actually cover their rump or, or whatever the thing was. And, and of course, the college students reacted like college students would. You know, basically every girl on campus only wore yoga pants for like a week or something like that. But here, here's the thing at the end of the day. Are they pants? No. In my opinion, they're underwear. <laughs> I mean, that at the end of the day, that is what they are. They are skin tight garments that should probably be worn under something. But, but here's the thing as well as I know people, some women in my life that are very, very dear to me that wear yoga pants. But the thing about it is, in my opinion, they're wearing it in a way that is tasteful. So they're wearing it with an adorning garment like a top that is actually covering their butt, right? 
And so it's basically like them wearing, I don't know, a really short dress, but then their, their legs are, are absolutely covered. But if I'm being honest, there are a lot of girls that wear yoga pants around and they're wearing it with shirts that show their midriff or wearing shirts that are skin tight that don't go down uh, over the rest of their anatomy or whatever thing might be. And the thing about it is, guys, is it doesn't leave a whole lot to the imagination, does it? I mean, when someone's wearing skin tight yoga pants and maybe they're, you know, maybe, maybe they're not wearing underwear or maybe they're working out or maybe whatever the thing might is, it's like, geez, like, come on. I mean, it's, it's tempting enough walking through this world, trying to bounce your eyes, trying to honor your wife with your eyes when she's nowhere near you, all those things. And then you see someone walking around like that. So it is very, very difficult. And I know for most of my friends that don't really care to bounce their eyes, that it's just something that's like, oh, that's just something that I'm going to have to see now. Oh, well, there's a butt. I need to look at it. And so I guess my encouragement to any ladies that are listening to this, and believe it or not, there are ladies out there listening to this, is if you're going to wear those pants because they're comfortable, I've never worn them, so I I can't imagine uh, if they're comfortable or not. I would assume since you're wearing them all the time that they are comfortable, perhaps wear it with an appropriate top. I I guess that's the best I would go. I mean, what am I supposed to do with this question? Are leggings pants? But no, I don't think they're pants. I think they're underwear. I think people are wearing them around as if that that is an okay thing to wear. Uh, I don't think it's very modest. If you're a Christian young lady out there, if you're a father and you're raising a Christian young lady, I would maybe have a serious talk about what they're wearing with their yoga pants. If they are covering up the rest of what they're doing, because the thing is, is, you know, you wouldn't probably like it if, um, you know, somebody were tempting your, your 14 year old son at at a church camp or at a church or something like that, wearing something like that. Right. But part of that starts at home, whatever is acceptable to allow your daughters to walk out into the world wearing. Um, and there's only so much control we can have over something like that. But here I am turning leggings into a really serious conversation, but yes, I think it is a serious conversation. It's mainly has to do with parents and also for people that are trying to take care of themselves and trying to make sure that they don't cause anyone else to stumble in the world. I think it's important to not just wear those things by themselves. So good grief. Hopefully we have a a better next question. So thank you again to whoever snuck that one in. All right. Next question. Here we go. What is your go-to morning routine to ensure a fire start to the the day? I've been fasting until 11 a.m. And uh, on the days I do, I feel like I uh, think and function better. Sorry, I jacked that up completely. But okay, essentially asking about my morning routine. So um, my mornings are a little bit different. Uh, because, you know, I kind of create my own schedule and uh, there's not very many things that are like solidified on a day-to-day basis. But uh, essentially, I know that Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm going to train jujitsu at 6 a.m. And then whenever I get home, I'm going to lift. And so those are fairly involved days. And for me, uh, I do intermittent fasting. And so I don't eat anything until noon. And so I know it's crazy for a lot of people to think of, but like on Mondays and Wednesdays, when I also wake up and lift or Fridays, when I potentially lift or Saturdays, when I potentially lift or, you know, wake up and do some sort of recovery exercise or something like that, I do everything fasted. And I mean, everything. And so there's a handful of days in the week, usually like a Thursday night and a Sunday night where where I will actually work out in the evening. I try not to eat for at least three or four hours before I go and do that for a lot of different reasons. You know, you don't want to have gas and, you know, be doing jujitsu or trying to move around and do stuff like that. So my body has gotten insanely used to lifting and running and doing really hard things cardio wise without any food. And then also I won't do any food for several more hours. So if I get done lifting at like nine o'clock, well, I'm not going to be eating for another three hours. And one of the things that I kind of has opened intermittent fasting to me is that I used to believe in the, or there was good evidence to believe in the magic hour, right? Like right after you lifted, that was like the, the big hour where you had to get your protein in. So whether you were consuming food protein or taking protein powder or something like that, then the first 30 to 60 minutes after you lifted, that was the thing is like, this is whenever the protein absorbs the most into the body, blah, 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 had to do it. 
But then recently, there's been more science that's come out that basically said that's not really the case. That essentially, if as long as you have protein, a, an appropriate amount of protein in your body within a 24-hour cycle after lifting, that it's going to absorb fine. And there's even studies to suggest that the farther away from your workout within, still within that 24-hour period, that you get that protein, that it will actually absorb faster then. And so basically what that freed me up to do since I'm a morning lift person is that I can lift and do all those things and then not eat until noon. But I will tell you, once it becomes noontime, you better get out of my way, right? Like as soon as that food gets in front of me, I mean, I gorge for my lunches. I mean, I really, really fill up because again, I only eat from noon to eight o'clock. And so in order to get the amount of calories that I need uh, to kind of keep up with the activity level that I have, it really starts with me making sure that I can get enough calories in that eight hour window. So, but in terms of my morning routine, I like to get a good amount of sleep. I don't like to stay up super late. Uh, I like to get, you know, seven, eight hours if I can, but typically really try to nail that seven hours, but I make sure I get some sort of physical activity in first part of the day. All right, guys, next question. How do we prepare the next generation to become the men that God has called us all to be? Um, and so this is very similar to a lot of questions that I've gotten in the past about kind of what do we do about the next generation? What do we do with our sons? Those types of things. And again, broken record, but if you're hearing this for the first time, it's very, very important for you to think about rites of passage. Okay. As Americans, as Westerners, we don't really have rites of passage anymore. There's not really that time or that moment where we all knew, well, I was a man at this exact moment, right? Whereas in other cultures, there are specific rites of passage where the young boys know exactly at that exact moment, they are now considered a man within their community. And so we don't do that. And so as Christian men of God, whether we're doing that solo, just in our household or in a small group or in a, in a larger group in, a, in our area, it's very important that we we coax our boys into manhood and that we lead them there in a certain way. And so that's the thing that I think is the most important thing. In addition to all those things is making sure that your children are reading scripture, making sure you're reading scripture with them, making sure that you're praying together, making sure that you're living out gospel mandates and biblical mandates in everyday life together with them, going and being charitable for people, helping people out, praying for people, uh, being a service to other people, sharing the gospel with people. Those are things that you need to model to our sons because that's going to really show them what it means to be like Christ as, and it's going to help them to do that for other people. And one thing I heard, it was interesting. I'll try to remember exactly where I heard it, but it was in a podcast episode where this particular guy said that it was really, really important for fathers to not be 100% a part of their son's rites of passage. And I'd never heard this before, so I'll try to tease it out uh, in my short understanding of it. But every time I've thought about rites of passage, I've thought about, okay, if I had a son starting at the age of like, you know, 10 and every year until they were 18, we would do like this thing or this project or go out in the woods and, you know, every year it would get progressively harder and I would teach them more things and they would learn more about themselves and all those things. And it was always, you know, I would be there. That was always the thing, right? But there was a, a sense in all these cultures where separation is really, really important. So separation from the track or from, from the tribe and, or from the pack and separation from the community and separation from the family. And then whenever they come back to the family, whenever they're brought back into the fold, it's, it's a deeper level of commitment to that family or, or that household or something like that. And that it was other men, because you guys out there know this, you have your sons and daughters that you'll tell them to do something, tell them to do something, tell them to do something. They're like, nah, I don't like that. That's stupid, whatever. And then you'll hear like a camp counselor say it or a coach say it or a preacher say, it, and then all of a sudden the kid's like, oh man, this is a really good idea. I should do that. And you're like, ah! he's like, you want to kill him? Right. It's kind of one of those deals. It's like, okay. Maybe if they hear dad saying it the whole time, 
Maybe they're going to get some of it. Maybe you have a different relationship with your son or your daughter, but it's just a little bit different. But that's something that's interesting for me, not having a son, hoping to have a son someday, that that would be something that would be really important to bring other guys, some of my foxhole guys, guys that I'm in the foxhole with right now, having them be a part of that process with my son. I think that'd be awesome. All right, guys, next question. How do you decide what topics to cover on the podcast? Okay, so this is a pretty easy one. So Basically, if it's not interesting to me or any of us here, then we're not going to talk about it, right? But the the podcast topics, I mean, I've got a whiteboard and I've got a running set of notes on my phone of topics that I can talk about at any point ever, right? So I think, what was it, last week or week before, it was like moral relativism, moral relativity or whatever the thing was. And so that's something that I had recorded months ago that it was just appropriate to kind of stick it in to this point because there wasn't anything else that I felt like was pressing, which kind of leads to the other thing is if there's something pressing, if there's like a moment in our culture, or if there's something big in the news or, or, you know, an attack of some kind somewhere, we're going to war, whatever the thing might be, I think it's important to talk about those things when they're fresh on our minds. And so several times on this podcast, I've actually pushed episodes back. I've pushed episodes into the future because they weren't time sensitive. They weren't pertinent to what was happening in the world at that exact moment. And so again, like I said, I, I try to bring these to you guys in, in just bite-sized chunks. And I know for some of y'all are like, dude, some of these are an hour long. How's that a bite size? But, but again, I listen to everything at two times speed. So I try to you know speed things up to get more content in, but you know, it's, it's 30 to 60 minutes of, of something that's really important and really pertinent. I try to bring it uh, to you in a perspective that might be a little bit different different than the way that you're hearing it in the news or hearing it at church or hearing it in your circle of friends. And I obviously want to do things to encourage you guys to be better, to look at things in a different light. And so if something is that important and it kind of meets all those filters and circumstances, then we'll bring it to you that way. All right, next question. What are the best podcast episodes you've listened to recently? Okay, so I actually went through, and every time I hear a really, really good podcast, I will actually save it. So I li- listen to stuff on Apple iTunes, and so I'll actually hit the hit the save episode button or whatever. And so if I'm out of podcasts or I don't have anything new to listen to, I'll go back and listen to one of those. And so there's maybe about 10 or so or maybe a dozen that I've come up with in the last few months that I thought were really, really fantastic. And so uh, I'll just kind of throw them out there to you here in a list form. And I'll go ahead and uh, provide the list at the end of this podcast as well, but Unfortunately, I won't be able to provide the links to these exact episodes because if there's too many links in the show notes, it doesn't upload, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so uh, one is the Matt Walsh show. This is episode 209. When will the sane majority stand up? So Matt Walsh, uh, he's got a very, 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 very straightforward style. Uh, a lot of people <laughs> actually don't like that very much because he doesn't really mince words. He doesn't seem to be an incredibly emotive individual. And that's, you know, that's, that's fine for a lot of people. That doesn't really bother me, but I know his insensitivity at times can really, really bother some folks. But in this particular episode, he was basically talking about transgenderism. It's a topic that he talks about uh, at a lot of different points, but in most of his episodes, he'll cover a few, uh, major topics and then he'll go over some, um, you know, mailbag stuff from, from individuals. So he pretty much does Q and a on every single one of his podcasts. So, Hey, he's better than me. Who cares? It is what it is. The next one was the village church podcast. So again, that's uh, Matt Chandler. And so this was the one actually from this past Sunday. So this is May the 6th. So I'm actually recording this, um, I'm recording this on the Sunday after that, but it's on May the 6th and it's called Biblically Serious. And so sometimes Matt Chandler drives me insane because he doesn't really work off of an outline. 
sometimes it's it's kind of hard to know where he's going or even realize where he's been. It's somewhat difficult to follow him sometimes. Sometimes he'll say kind of, hey, here's the three things I'm going to cover today. And you're like, oh, man, this is going to be awesome. And then he doesn't like hit any of those points. And so I felt like this one was a really, really tight sermon. I felt like it was kind of a gauntlet being thrown down talking about why we should be serious about the Bible. So that's a good one. Uh, the Joe Rogan Experience, episode 1262. This is with Pat McNamara. So Pat McNamara is like a gangster. This dude is like in his 50s and he's like, he works out like a mad madman. I think uh, he was a, a spec ops uh, guy in the military until he retired, but he's had an incredibly rough life and it was like brought on by himself. Like he wanted to make himself rough and tough and, and some of the things he does out in the wilderness, but that was a very, very interesting podcast and it's got a lot of awesome uh, content in it. And then also it made me follow him on Instagram, which has been really, really cool as well. Now, a couple of Ben Shapiro show uh, podcast episodes. So these are actually, he does a Sunday special. It's like a sit down interview with somebody. So he did one with Stephen C. Meyer. That's episode 43, which was from March the 24th. And then he did one with William Lane Craig, literally today, the day that I'm recording this, he released it. So this is a five twelve of 19. So that's Sunday special episode number 50. So uh, let me start with William Lane Craig. So obviously he's a well-known philosopher and apologist. And so it's kind of interesting seeing him kind of spar a little bit with Ben Shapiro because Ben Shapiro is obviously an Orthodox Jew. William Lane Craig is a Christian and an apologist for that. And so you can see uh, Ben Shapiro at different times be a little bit dismissive of some of uh, Craig's points, but uh, I thought it was very, very well done and it's incredibly deep. So that's one that I listened to at two times speed. I was probably like, I think I'm too dumb to listen to that one at two times speed. So I may need to go back and listen to that one at half speed. And then Stephen C. Meyer is the author of the book Darwin's Doubt. And so this is a guy that's basically talking uh, from a very high level of scientific understanding about how creationism is probably the, the most viable thing for us to kind of think about when it comes to uh, how we got the world that we got to today. So that one, again, that one's not for dummies. So definitely listen to that one, uh, but maybe not bump that one up to two times speed. Um, the Rubin Report, so that's Dave Rubin. Um, this one was called Respectful Disagreement, Christianity and Marriage, and this is with Ali Stuckey. And so Ali Stuckey is a uh, conservative female commentator. Um, she has the PragerU video, which has more views than any other PragerU video now, basically talking about how strong men don't want weak women. Because that's kind of something that we see today is, you know, all these feminists, they want their men to basically basically be subservient weirdos, right? That are just going to like have feelings and sit at home cleaning the same dish over and over and making them dinner and, you know, supporting them in the only way they know how, which is basically by crying on the couch while they're wearing a sweater. And so uh, this is kind of one of those things is I really like how her mind works and how she interacted with Dave Rubin. Uh, the Great Man Podcast, uh, that is an episode, uh, Be the Vision Keeper, that is from, what is that, April the 30th, and so this was, uh, these are kind of bite-sized, like five to ten minute podcasts by Stephen Mansfield, and so uh, I don't want to really get it too much into uh, what that one's about, because it'll kind of ruin it, so go ahead and check that one out from the 30th of April. Uh, last couple here, uh, the Jordan Peterson Podcast, this is called Three Lecture in Portland, Oregon from June 25th of 2018, uh, that's the name of it, but it was actually posted on April the 7th. And so this is uh, a lot of, this is one of his live lectures. It's about an hour, hour and 15 minutes of lecture. And then he goes into Q and a, but probably the best podcast that I've listened to listened to recently was an Art of Manliness podcast, and this was episode 505. This was released on May 6th, so about a week ago or so, and it's called A Man's Need for Ritual. And you know, okay, I remember this is actually the podcast where the guy introduced the idea of not having you know direct access to your son during rites of passage, right? To have other men involved. 
But this was a really, really interesting conversation about ritualized manhood and about how we need a desire to get back to that. And this isn't a guy that was necessarily bringing that to us from a theistic point of view, but I still think it was it was incredibly important. So those are some uh, for you guys that are maybe trying to jumpstart your podcast listening. Maybe you only listen to two or three. That gives you a few more options there. All right. Next one here. What does it look like to be a resilient father or father figure for kids that you mentor? Um, well, the thing about this one that's really easy is, again, we talk about manliness or manhood being, you know, a male that cultivates spiritual, mental and physical resilience daily. And so if you are mentoring a kid and you're you're fat and out of shape, um, you're not exactly dispe- displaying physical resilience to that to that boy. And that doesn't mean you have to do jujitsu or you have to do triathlons or you have to do crazy like mountain ops things. It's just you're, you need to take care of yourself. Because again, you're modeling to your, your sons or, or the, the kids that you're mentoring what it's like to be a resilient person. And here's the other thing. And so the, the physical thing is the one I talk about the most because it's the one that you can see. If somebody doesn't take care of their body, they don't diet and they don't exercise, you can obviously see that on most people, right? Uh, unless their genetics are just absolutely horrific, but at which point you can still outwork your genetics. But even beyond that, when you're going through a situation that's difficult, whether it's emotionally difficult or physically difficult or mentally difficult, it, it's good to show these young boys that, oh, I can get through this. This is really, really hard, but I can get through this. And you know what, son? You know what, boy? You can do this too. And so I, I think the thing about it that makes this question so easy to answer is you just have to model it. Because why would you expect your son to do something that you're not doing? I mean, there, I love my dad. I, I feel like I had a, an amazing dad. But he and I have don't haven't done anything the same, right? I mean, he's not a reader. I read all the time. Like he doesn't listen to podcasts. That's something that's really important to me. He kind of stopped trying to develop who he was or, or improve who he was years and years ago. Whereas I'm trying to get better and sharper and, 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 you know, faster and all these different things here when I'm in my thirties and I plan to do the same thing in my forties and fifties and sixties. So it's not something that I can model a lot of my lifestyle in the direction that I'm going after my father. Would it have been easier to see someone else do that and model it and just follow in their footsteps? Yeah. Have, have I gotten some value out of just figuring it out on my own? Sure. But again, the question is, is how, what does it look like to be a resilient father or father figure to the kids that you mentor? You just have to show them. So if you haven't gotten serious about spiritual, mental, or physical resilience, don't expect your kids to, and don't expect them to just know that's what you mean for them, right? You have to show them explicitly. All right. Next question here. What is the best and worst book that you've read lately? Okay. So uh, I actually need to record a podcast episode specifically just on this book, but the best book that I've read this year so far uh, has been Professor in the Cage by Jonathan Goschel and um, really, really good book. Basically a short synopsis of that book is this was a... um, guy in his late thirties, who was an adjunct English professor at a, at a college. And he was just basically staring at the walls out every day, just wondering if this was going to be his entire life. And so, uh, one uh, long story short, he ended up uh, walking into an MMA school one day and began to train MMA. And eventually he wanted to go on into a fight and do a fight himself. And that's kind of the thing I've talked about this book a little bit before. This isn't just like a memoir about a guy that was a wimp and wanted to become a tough guy. He actually spent a lot of time thinking about why men like fighting, why men look forward to fighting, why they like to watch fighting, all those different things. So it was a tremendously uh, 
depth. It was it had a tremendous amount of depth. A uh, depth. <laughs> depth. That's the word. D E P T H. Tremendous amount of depth uh, with this book. And so I wasn't really expecting that. I was expecting more of a memoir. But that is the best book I've read lately. But the worst book that I've read lately is a book that I was really sad about because I was really looking forward to reading it. It was called God and the Transgender Debate by Andrew T. Walker. And so there's a book that I've been eyeing uh, from a Christian point of view about transgenderism for a while called Understanding Gender Dysphoria by a guy named Yarhouse. And uh, the thing was, is the reason why I didn't buy that is because it was like 25 bucks on ebook or something like that. And I was like, oh, I don't know, like this book could end up sucking. I don't want to, I could buy like two other books for that amount or maybe three other books. But this one, uh, I saw that the foreword was by Albert Moeller and I really like Albert Moeller. I listen to the daily, uh, to the, to the briefing every single day. That's a daily podcast he does. And the thing was, is I was really, really disappointed in this book. I felt like it was a lot of woo woo. Like it was a lot of just like stuff that we already know, like, oh, even if somebody has gender dysphoria, we really are still to love them and care for them and understand. And I was like, well, yeah, yeah, I get it. Is that it? I got that. That was the thing after every chapter. I was like, is that it? Like it, it didn't have any depth. It didn't really give me any sense of what is really going on with these people, how I can engage them in a conversation, how I can engage with other people who basically look at gender dysphoria as like just a thing that happens. And absolutely a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. All they have to do is think it. It gave me no tangible ways to combat any of that. So I am very, very much so looking forward to reading the other book. I would like to get that in at some point this year, uh, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, because again, I would like to talk to you guys about transgenderism, because I know that's something I get asked about a lot as well, but I haven't gotten all my arguments and all of my uh, formulation of that fully taken care of. So those are the best and worst that I've read just here lately. All right, next question. What book are you reading right now? Okay, so I'm actually, I got two books going. So I typically have about two books going, one that I read slowly because I read that with my Sunday night crew. So again, if you're in Edmond, Oklahoma or anywhere in Oklahoma City, come see us at the Forge in Edmond uh, on seven o'clock on Sundays. We train jujitsu, do some circuit workouts, but we also talk about books. So the book that we're reading right now, we just started a couple weeks ago. It's called No God But One, Allah or Jesus. So that's by Nabil Qureshi. That should be familiar to you guys because I've talked about it on this podcast before. I've also got it on the 100 books that every modern Christian man should read list. So that's just go to the website undaunted.life backslash book list. And so this is a guy he's, he's since passed away, but he basically uh, used to be a Muslim, became a Christian. Um, and this book is more of a deep dive into the differences between what Christians believe and what Muslims believe. And so his first book, Seeking the Law, Finding Jesus, that most of you have read, that is one that is a memoir. It's a great book. It kind of gives you a good synopsis of what people believe within uh, Islam but this book takes a much, much deeper dive and it's way, way, way more specific, but it's still palatable and easy for you to digest. And so this is the second time I will have been go- going through that. I'm going through that with a group. But the book that I'm reading on my own right now that I actually just started is called Jesus Among Secular Gods. And so that's by Rabbi Zacharias and Vince Vital. And so those are both people that work for Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries. And so that one is basically talking about um, all the, all the isms, right. Uh, secularism, sexism, and all these other like scientisms. And, and basically it's comparing Jesus to the secular gods of our world. And again, if you know anything about Zacharias or Vital, uh, these are guys that go all around the world, basically arguing for why the gospel is correct for why the historicity of the biblical texts are correct and can be trusted and all these different things. And so this is not going to be a woo woo book. I can't imagine it being a woo woo book. So I'm excited to take that one down 
down. And then after I read those, uh, the next ones I'll probably read, it'll be one of these two. I'll either finally read the Gulag Archipelago because that's one of those things where I'm a little bit behind on my reading goal for this year. Like I'm, I'm about, you know, three or four weeks slower or behind where I should be right now. And so if I throw the Gulag Archipelago in there, that's going to take a long, long time to read. So, uh, but I want to take that one down. So that might be next, or I'm going to read seven days that divide the world by John Lennox. And so that kind of gets into, you know, the scientific creationism and worldviews and stuff like that. So that's pretty interesting. All right. Next question here. What is one book that you wish would disappear from history? Uh, so when I first got this question, uh, this was of all the questions in this podcast episode, this was the one that I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, I haven't heard that one before. Like not even anything close to that. Um, and so I really had to think about this one. And I went all over the place. I thought about um, Mein Kampf by uh, Hitler. I thought about, it's funny, I actually even thought about the Bible. I was like, I wonder what we would be doing right now if we didn't have the Bible. But guys, I'm not being a blasphemer. I'm not saying we shouldn't have the Bible, but I just had that thought, like, what would we be doing if we didn't have the Old and the New Testament? Um, But I just went along to, I I thought about uh, Darwin and, and that big, long titled book about evolution. But the one that I landed on finally and it's one that I feel more and more comfortable the, the farther I get away from the decision, is the Communist Manifesto. So that is by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. And so this is something that was written. It wasn't even technically a book. It was actually like a political pamphlet that was uh, published in the 1800s. But the thing about this is this one manifesto has led to so many horrific things. I think you can you can look at most of the atrocities of the 20th, 20th century and take them back to this Marxist ideology, this communist ideology. Um, And it's from this communist ideology that we get socialism. I think you can draw a direct link to the rise of socialism back to what was talked about by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels here. But um, there's a article that I actually want to read to you here that I think kind of sums up my feelings on why I think the Communist Manifesto is so horrific. And, and it's one of those books that, again, if I could get rid of one book, that would be the one. And so Ben Shapiro actually wrote an article on this back in 2018, and it was basically saying, Karl Marx, you were wrong. So it's a short article here, but I just want to read this to you right here, okay? This week marks the birthday of one of the history's worst human beings, Karl Marx. Just because Marx's philosophy would lead directly to the deaths of a hundred million human beings over the course of a century, the imprisonment of tens of millions more in gulags and re-education camps from Russia to China to Vietnam to Cambodia to North Korea, and the oppression of hundreds of millions more hasn't dissuaded those on the modern Western left from embracing Marx's bloody legacy. Realizing, however, that embracing communism itself might alienate those who remember the Berlin Wall, today's Marxists rally instead for identity politics. In the pages of the New York Times, the same newspaper that in the past two years has run opinion pieces endorsing communism's impact on female empowerment and female sexual activity and its inspirational effects on Americans, Kyung-hee University Associate Professor of Philosophy Jason Barker celebrated Marx's birthday, writing, Happy birthday, Karl Marx. You were right. What exactly was Marx right about? He wasn't right about economics. His theory of economics is tripe. He wasn't right about history unfolding as a glorious Hegelian progression toward a socialist utopia either. But according to Baker, he was right about one thing. The dispossessed of the world would unite to change human nature by changing the system of oppression under which they lived. Marx, says Baker, was right about class exploitation, the rich exploiting the poor. But it's the guise of victim group based on race and sex that Marx dialect finds its true apotheosis. 
Racial and sexual oppression has been added to the dynamic of class exploitation. Social justice movements like Black Lives Matter and Hashtag Me Too owe something of an unspoken debt to Marx through the air, unapologetic targeting of the eternal truths of our age. Such movements recognize, as Marx did, that the ideas that rule every society are those of its ruling class and that overturning those ideas is fundamental to true revolutionary progress. Here, Baker is merely rehashing the writings of members of the Frankfurt School Marxists, such as Herbert Marcuse, who argued that, quote, human beings who have lived in the shadow of this culture, the victims of the power structure, now oppose to the music of the spheres, which was the most sublime achievement of this culture, their own music, with all the defiance and the hatred and the joy of rebellious victims, defining their own humanity against the definitions of the masters, unquote. Instead of a revolution of the proletariat, then Marxism now seeks now sorry, instead of the revolution of the proletariat, then Marxism now seeks a revolution of the victim. Sorry, that was a little hard there, but here we go. The various groups of dispossessed who feel that the systems has been stacked against them. And it is far easier to unite such groups around intersectional themes than it is to unite them around income disparity. There may not be any serious brotherhood between those who don't earn much money, but pure tribalism forms lasting ties, and Marxists are happy to mold those tribes into a new nation of rebels. And so again, I think the Communist Manifesto is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. I think if you read it and don't laugh a whole, whole lot, there might be something wrong with you, and we might see you with a black mask over your face throwing Molotov cocktails at police officers at some point. But again, if I could get rid of one book, that would be the one. All right, guys, next question. Just a few more left here. Do you accomplish your, did you accomplish your goals for 2018? How did that factor into your goal setting for 2019? Okay. So obviously I set goals every year. I do written goals. I have them up on my board at home. I check them off as I accomplish them. Uh, Again, if you go back, I think it was episode two or three of this podcast. I talked about goal setting. And we talked about every goal that you have should be a stretch goal and every goal that you have uh, should be a goal that's worth it, right? So if it's worth it, it'll probably stretch you. And if it's stretching you, it's probably worth it. And so there's some goals that I set that are not very likely for me to actually mark off. And then there's other ones that are a little bit more likely. So I did not accomplish all of my goals for, goals for 2018. There were a couple that kind of bothered me. I, I said I was going to do a, a deep dive into Romans and Galatians. I ended up not doing either. And so there's not really a good excuse for that. But that was a goal I didn't hit in 2018. 2018. I set a goal to attain my blue belt. And that was one of those stretch goals that was, you know, kind of completely outside of my control. I mean, I can, I can train and I can compete and I can do those things, but it's up to uh, the black belts and and the really good guys that are gym to determine who uh, has reached a certain point to get to that next level. And so uh, those were a couple of goals that I didn't hit, but basically how that changes or how that factors into goal setting for the next year, I basically evaluate the goals that I hit and I evaluate if it's worth hitting them again. And so every year, my goal is to do the Murph workout. But I, I try to change that up. So for those of you who don't know the Murph workout, that's uh, uh, after Lieutenant Michael Murphy. It's a workout where you do a one-mile run, 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 air squats, and air squats, and another mile run. And you do that all with a, a weighted vest on or, uh, or a backpack or you know some sort of body armor or something like that. And so that's something that I've done every year for a lot of numbers of years. And so I always want to make sure that no matter what I'm doing, that I'm always in shape enough to do that workout because it's a pretty tough workout, especially especially if you're not used to doing those types of things. But every year I change it up a little bit. So last year I tried to you know beat my personal record. This year I'm doing the Murph without doing any Murph specific training leading up to it. So none of my lifting and none of my cardio and none of my preparation is going to change. The day of Memorial Day, I'm just going to wake up and do the Murph workout. So I'm not going to do extra stuff with the weighted vest. I'm not going to run 
extra. I'm not going to do any of those things just to see how my body responds. And that'll kind of give me an idea of, of where I'm at on a normal, regular, regularized basis. But I basically look at the goals that I hit and I see if it's worth it to add them again. And then the goals that I missed, I kind of get to decide, was that a good goal to begin with? Was that a goal that was way too far out beyond me? Was that a goal that I I ever even really intended to hit? Is that one that I even wanted to hit? And so that's basically what I do whenever I do my goal setting every year. As I'm looking at where where it sits. And and for me, I, I don't mind taking a red marker to my goals in the middle of the year right? Like if things change, uh, I like to add things, I like to take things away, but I don't just take things off. That's like, oh, well, that's going to be really difficult. So I'm just going to like scratch that off. It's just like, oh, you know what? I thought that was going to be something I really wanted to do. But now six months later, that's really stupid. I'm just going to go ahead and get rid of that one. So that's essentially how I do that. Okay. A couple more questions left. Uh, Here we go. Uh, What do you think of bat flips in baseball? Okay. So if you've been watching baseball for the last couple of years, bat flips have become a thing. So if you don't know what a bat flip is, essentially what you do is once you make contact with the ball, you hit the ball, this typically happens on a home run. Typically, normal people just set their bat down or toss it down and start running. But this new thing in baseball is once you hit the ball is trying to throw the bat in some sort of creative fashion. And the cool thing is, is you get way more cool points if it looks like just kind of like a natural thing that happened, that you didn't throw it in any particular manner, just boing, like popped out of your hands and flew majestically into the other dugout or hit an opposing fan or whatever thing might be. So if you haven't gotten a sense of what I think about bat flips already, let me make it a little bit more explicitly for you. I think it's ridiculous. It's so stupid to me. Like, okay, for those of you that uh, I I can already tell some of you are thinking this way because you know I'm a Cardinals fan. So for 11 or 12 years, I think it was 11 years, uh, that Albert Pujols played for the Cardinals. He would always pimp his home runs. So basically he would hit a home run, he'd stare at the ball, and then he'd walk a couple of steps, toss his bat down, and then start running. And that drove me insane. It drove me insane. You're one of the best players on the planet. You might end up with 700 home runs or more by the time you're done playing baseball. Why in the world are you staring at it like it's the first time you've seen a ball go that far? Get to running. What are you doing? Go run. Like, we're waiting on you to get back to home plate so we can put this dash on the scoreboard and move on with our lives. I can't stand it when people pimp stuff. It's like, I don't like dancing after you score a touchdown. I don't like celebrating on your way into the end zone. I don't like doing backflips off off the cage once you've knocked someone out. It's like, dude, just, you won. You hit the home run. You did something good for your team. Move on with your life. And I know I sound like an old prude at this point. And some people are like, oh, we like the pizzazz. We like the flair. We like all that stuff. It's just useless to me. Because again, you're, you got little kids that are watching this. And so you have kids in the Little League World Series flipping a bat because they make contact with a ball. It's like these dopes can barely make contact on a regular basis. And they're, they're like pimping a home run. Really? How about you focus on maximizing your understanding of the basics of the game, and then maybe you can move on to doing things that are at a little bit of a higher level. So no, I'm not a fan of this whole bat flip thing. And half of the things that I get on my phone from Bleacher Report or from ESPN or SportsCenter or whatever that I get the notifications on my phone, it's watch this Yasio Puig home run and the bat flip was epic. And it's just like, okay, like I get it, but it's just like, dude, great. You hit a home run. That's the amazing part. You hit a spherical ball coming at you at almost 100 miles an hour with movement, with a round bat. You squared up a spherical ball with a round bat. It doesn't even make sense when you say it out loud. And you hit a ball 400 plus feet. That is the accomplishment, not the bat flip. So, for the love of God, enough with the bat flips. 
And guys, last question of the day, and this might be the most important question that we've talked about today because we're running up right up here at an hour. It is how do you like your steak cooked, Kyle? And that's the thing, man. Medium rare. All you people out there eating your well-done steaks, your bicycle tires with ketchup, you need to stop that. That is sinful. God did not give us red meat so that you could ruin it like that. Cook it to medium rare, not medium. Medium rare, a perfect medium rare. That's all you need. All right, guys, before we let you go, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. And so today, I want to do a little mental resilience to give you a rundown of some of the things that we have and talked about here on this podcast. So I gave you the article from John Piper that has the audio and the transcript of why do we see so few miracles today. I've got the best podcast episodes I have listened to recently. I've got the list there. Again, I can't provide the links or else I won't be able to upload all of this audio. So go ahead and check those out. And guys, if you've got other podcasts that you've listened to, like I've kind of got, you know, my, my two dozen or so that I go to the well most often, but if there's something that I'm definitely missing out on, please hit me up info at undaunted.life or hit me up on Instagram, send me a message, whatever, just hit me up. I want to make sure I'm listening to good stuff. And then I've got that Shapiro article where he's talking about Karl Marx. So guys, thanks as always for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or Google play and refer your friends to listen. If you share this on social media, make sure you use the hashtag Undaunted Life, and we'll be sure to find the post and give it a thumbs up. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, that's how this podcast will continue to grow. The algorithm loves five-star reviews, so please leave us one with a few sentences letting us know why you like the podcast. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the rest of 2019 and the beginning of 2020, so if you want me to talk to your men's group on your podcast, at your conference, whatever, hit me up, info at undaunted.life. Again, that's info at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life or Facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is our song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.